around the corner to you, you know? And you're right. Good stuff. If you've got your Bible, would you please open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just, I'll move this, Jack. Hang on. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All right. If you can't hear me at the back, just, Tim, raise your hand and I'll just shout louder, but that's okay. Great. Uh, have you ever done uh, the, the gospel matchstick challenge? Um, maybe you've done it in home group. You get a box of matches, usually the small ones. I, we, we don't have any matches in our house measuring this size. I couldn't bring any this morning. But you get a box of matches, and then you, you light a match, and you have to uh, explain the gospel to someone before your fingers get burned. Anybody ever done that? Maybe, or maybe you've done it with your personal testimony. Uh, but that is uh, it's, it's the gospel matchstick challenge. It's an interesting, although slightly dangerous, challenge. And, and what you find is when someone's holding a matchbox and someone's holding a lit match and they've got to explain the gospel, nobody does a really very, a very good job. Most people get tongue-tied. They're like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I gonna do? And we end up not really explaining the gospel as clearly as we would like or not explaining the gospel as powerfully as we would hope. Um, we end up including things that should never be part of the gospel. We end up saying perhaps something like, you know, well, we're not okay, but Jesus invites us to a better life. Or we say, we maybe we make the mistake of saying, you know, God really loves you and he just really wants to be your friend. Which is true, obviously. Or maybe we say something like, you know, God, the gospel is God's call to follow him, to live differently, to make a difference in the world, to serve, to give and to bless others. Now, there's elements of truth in all of those, and no doubt we would say there's some very good things in those kind of sentences, but they are not the gospel. They are misrepresentations of the gospel. So how do we summarize the gospel clearly? How are you going to, in your home group this week, when you're holding a box of matches in your hands... Explain the gospel to everybody else on Zoom before your house catches fire. Well, in this morning's text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we find that Paul summarizes the heart of the gospel in 15 Greek words, or 24 English words. And one commentator says that this is, there is no more profound sentence in the whole of scripture, for it sets forth the gospel in all of its mystery and all of its worth. Jack, just turn this down because it's more distracting. Making it, there we go. So, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Let me find it. Read along, would you, with me in God's word. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's read that again because it's good. It's gold. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this 
little verse, or just prior to this little verse, Paul has been speaking about the ministry of reconciliation. He's been telling the Corinthians how he's been reconciled to God, and then how he's been entrusted with a message of reconciliation that he now preaches. And that message of reconciliation really is summed up in verse 20, where it says, be reconciled to God. He is imploring people to be right with God. But the question that comes at the end of verse 20 when Paul says, be right with God, is how? How can you be right with God? How can such a reconciliation take place? How can an utterly and absolutely holy God, infinitely and eternally pure and perfect, have anything to do with wicked sinners? Now, sometimes when we think about reconciliation, we think, well, if I sin against God, all I need to do is come and say sorry to God. And God will say to me, that's okay, no biggie, you know, that's all right, we're cool, we're good, just go about your day, we'll forget about this. And we want to kind of excuse our sin and have that kind of level of interaction. But when it comes to God's side of things, he just can't do that because sin is a big deal to him. Sin is a, is a very big deal to him because it's a personal offense against him and his character. And so therefore he can't just pass over our sin with a wink and a smile. And say, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Everybody does that. That's all right. We're cool. That to behave like that would violate his holy and just and righteous character. Proverbs 17, verse 15, the writer of Proverbs says this. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. So God says, he who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous are an abomination to the Lord. Well, how can that be when we think about the gospel? Well, the good news is that this one verse wonder this morning tells us how the puzzle is solved. How God solves the divine dilemma. How both holy justice and perfect love or righteousness and mercy can kiss and meet. So, this is good news. It's packed with truth. And so this one verse wonder is, is a little bit like when you go to see the crown. If you were to go and see the crown jewels and you pass on the escalator through, uh, or escalator, the sort of the moving sidewalk that takes you past them in the Tower of London. If you were to stop, you, you know, you, and, and look at them, you would see that the grandness of the, of, the, of the whole of the crown jewels is made up of individual precious jewels. So you get the whole wow factor, like, Wow, you know, if I put that on my head, I would be three feet shorter than I already am because it looks so heavy. But it's made up of some of the most precious and most perfect and most glorious emeralds and rubies and diamonds that are known to man. And, and this verse is a little bit like that. The, the glory of the whole verse is incredible. You look at it and you go, wow, but we need to, to enjoy the richness of it. We've got to get down with a kind of a microscope thing that jewelers use and inspect all of the individual diamonds. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So go back to the beginning of the verse with me, if you would. Where Paul writes this, for our sake. Now, we'll get to that in a second. But I want to leave that aside a second because the gospel doesn't start with us. It starts with God. Now, that's not a mistake that Paul makes. That's just the way he's written in the Greek. So I'm not correcting Paul there. Or God. <laughs> but let's start with he. He made... And let's just stop there and ask the question, who is this he? Well, again, if you read back into verse 20, you get the answer. The he of verse 21 is God. God made 
and he did something. God did something. So the first thing that we say about the gospel is that God has done something. It's his plan. It's his design. It's, it's he that stands behind it all. It's he that's designed it all. It's he who's working it out in every detail. And it's he that brings it to fruition. There could be no reconciliation between God and man unless God takes the initiative. Unless God accomplishes it. Unless God applies it to us. There is absolutely nothing in this world that you and I can do, or any man, or any woman, or any child, to get ourselves right with God. There's nothing that we could do. There's nothing that we should avoid. There's no negotiation or arbitration that we can enter into to try and win God round and come to a good compromise. There's no give and take on both parties. Only God can take the initiative and only God can do it. Only God could know what it would take to make a sinner acceptable to him. So that the sinner could escape eternal wrath and enter into God's presence where there is fullness of joy forevermore. Only God could know what's, what's required. And only God could determine how his authoritative and unchangeable law, which is holy and just and good, could be uh, could be completely satisfied and the lawbreakers completely justified. Only God could, could determine how both of those things could happen. Only God could make all the necessary components that are required for reconciliation come together in the right moment at the right time. So only God could know what it would take. Only God knew how to solve the riddle and only God could be the one who can justify sinners. Now, as we saw in 1 Corinthians when we've been going through our series, the world thinks that the gospel is foolishness. But Paul repeatedly and adamantly defends the gospel as the purest and profoundest wisdom of God. Because in the gospel, God has devised a plan that is consistent with his holy character and it also allows sinners to be reconciled to him. And the sole driving force that Paul wants us to see right from the beginning of this verse one of these diamonds is that God has, is the driving force behind reconciliation. That the only reason that you and I are here this morning is because God has done something. Now what has God done? Let's continue reading. For our sake, he made him. Now, let's stop there. It's going to be a long sermon if we stop at every verse or every word, but we will. Him. Who's the him? If the he is God, who's the him? Well, the answer is found in the description that follows the word. Him who knew no sin. Well, that kind of narrows the field down to one. See, every human being who has ever lived has, has, is ruled out of that statement because each of us, every single one of us is a descendant of Adam. And that means we've been born into sin We've been born with a sinful nature that then makes us sin. And our sinful behavior flows out of and reveals the state of our hearts before God. So none of us could say, we know no sin. Romans 3.23, Paul will say somewhere else that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That no human qualifies for fitting into that category of knowing no sin except one. The hymn of this verse, as we all know, is Jesus. Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the sinless, holy and perfect God who has come into the world as a sinless man. He's the one who knew no sin. And it's not only that he didn't know sin, 
but he also perfectly and completely obeyed God's law in every way, in every area, every minute of every day of his life. So he knew no sin. He had no personal knowledge of sin. He had no acquaintance of sin. He was an utterly unique human being. As Paul writes in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son into the world, born of woman, born under the law, so as to redeem those who also were under the law. And the uniqueness of the virgin birth is important for us because the chain of transmission has been broken, if you like. So we know all about chains of transmission now, don't we, Living through, having lived through a pandemic. You know, if I'm infected and I hang around you and I breathe on you, you're probably going to get infected and then you'll pass it on to someone else. That's the chain of transmission. We pass things on one to another. And the chain of transmission when it comes to sin is Adam and Eve sinned and Adam, as the representative of all humanity, passed sin on to every single descendant. But because Jesus was born of a virgin and the Holy Spirit came and overshadowed Mary, as Luke 1 tells us, Jesus had no human father, so the chain of transmission was broken, so that he had no sinful nature inherited from Adam, which meant he knew no sin and did not sin. He didn't compound the sinful nature with sinful acts like we do. He was the God-man, God in the flesh, the infinite, omnipotent, holy, eternal Son of God who became a man, and for every single moment of his 33 years on this earth, he never sinned in thought, never sinned in deed, never sinned in action, never sinned in speech, never sinned in motive, never sinned in attitude, never got out of bed on the wrong side, never had a falling out with his four half-brothers and several sisters. That's amazing enough in itself, isn't it? I mean, I've only got two brothers and we have a pile, of, a mountain of sin that they've committed against me. <laughs> All right, but Jesus, Jesus never sinned. Consider the historical testimony that bears this out. In John 8, verse 46, when he is uh, uh, addressing the, the Jewish religious leaders on their hypocrisy, he says to them, which of you convicts me of sin? And the answer, well, no one answered. There was silence. In Luke chapter 23, when Jesus stands before Pilate on three occasions, Pilate this cynical, cruel, ungodly, pagan ruler, three times he says, I find no guilt in this man. Consider the thief on the cross just a little bit later in Luke 23. When the thief, one thief on one side is mocking Jesus, the thief on the other side says, hey, hey, hold up a minute, man. We're receiving the due punishment and the reward for our deeds, but this guy's innocent. And then a few verses later, the centurion who was overseeing Jesus' execution, when he saw all that Jesus had done and all that took place, he said, certainly this man was innocent. So even the unbelievers at the time saw something different about Jesus. But now listen to the, the two closest friends that he had, Peter and John, who lived with him day after day, night after night for three whole years. They were eyewitnesses who followed him Every footstep who heard every word, who saw every act that he committed. John would say in 1 John 3 verse 5, he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Or Peter in 1 Peter 1 22 would say this about Jesus, he committed no sin and neither was deceit found in his mouth. Or in chapter 3 verse 18, 
Peter said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So even his closest friends, just built on the testimony of the unbelievers at the time. Yeah, this guy is sinless. But then hear the ultimate testimony. Think about what God declared from heaven on two occasions at Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3, and in Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. In, his, in those moments, what does God declare from heaven? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's the ultimate affirmation there. A holy God is well pleased. With Jesus. Now you might say to me, well, that's because he was God, wasn't he? Well, yes, he was God. Absolutely, fully, purely, essentially God in the flesh. And yet he was also 100% fully human. The New Testament goes to great lengths to show us the, he experienced the full gamut of human emotions. He experienced joy and sorrow and grief. He experienced human frailties like hunger and thirst and tiredness. He experienced human temptations so that the writer to the Hebrews would say these things about Jesus. In Hebrews 2, 17, he had to be made like his brothers. He had to be like us in every respect so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. You know, that's why the writer to the Hebrews says, you know, the, bull, the, the blood of bulls and goats could never fully satisfy for sins. Why? Well, because they were, it was the blood of bulls and goats. You know, I might have the nickname ox, but a, a, a bull or an ox could not die for me in my place because it's an ox. I need a human to die in my place. And in Hebrews 4.15, the writer again says that we... Do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect, he was tempted just as we are. But he knew no sin. He was without sin. The old Baptist minister, Charles Spurgeon, said this. Hopefully it should come up on the screen. Christ was free from the corruption and the condemnation of the sin of Adam. And in his life, no sin ever corrupted his way. His eyes never flashed with an unhallowed anger. His lips never uttered a treacherous word. His heart never harbored an evil imagination. Never did he wander after lust. No covetousness ever so much as glanced his soul. He was holy. He was harmless. He was undefiled. And he was separate from sinners. And from the beginning of his life to the end, you cannot put your finger even upon a mistake. Much less a willful error. With sin, he had no communion, no fellowship, no brotherhood. He was a perfect stranger in the presence of sin. He was a foreigner in the land that sin inhabited. That's our Jesus. So, back to our verse. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no Sin. Well, let's just back up. What does it mean for then Jesus, this one who knew no sin, to be sin? Paul says he, God made him to be sin. He didn't know his own sin, but God made him to be sin. What, what, what does that mean? What does that diamond look like under the microscope? Well, here's the first thing that it doesn't mean. 
because we should be clear about that. It does not mean that God made Jesus a sinner. doesn't mean that. Neither does it mean that Jesus somehow uh, committed sins or broke God's law. But what it does mean is that God took all the iniquity and sin of all of us and he charged it to Jesus. He put it on Jesus. The posh Bible word or posh theological word for that is imputation. That Jesus, uh, that God, sorry, took all of our sin and imputed it into Christ. And punished him in our place as a substitute. So let's just think about those two things for a moment. Imputation and substitution. Let me start with substitution. If you've ever seen The Hunger Games, that's a film... uh, which has a great illustration of substitution. In this film, contestants in some weird and wacky world are forced to kill each other to stay alive. And when contestants are chosen for the Hunger Games, they're chosen from each kind of district that makes up this country. Uh, And one of the girls, there's a girl, a little teenage girl called Primrose Everdeen, who is plucked from the jar. They sort of pick people out of a hat. All the names go in their hat, and her name gets plucked out. Primrose Everdeen. And as the authorities lead this little girl, Primrose, away, her older sister, Katniss, begins to shout out from the crowd, I volunteer, I volunteer, take me instead, let her go, I volunteer. And so the guards stop Katniss from getting near to her sister, but she shouts louder and she shouts, I volunteer, I want to be the tribute. And so she becomes the representative for District 12 and she takes her sister's place and she becomes her substitute. Primrose steps out of the way and Katniss steps into her position. There's a substitution going on. And it's a very moving example of, the, of courage and sacrificial love. This elder sister steps into and voluntarily substitutes herself for another human being. But it's also a kind of an understandable substitution. Who wouldn't, if your little 11-year-old sister was going to be put into the Hunger Games, step in and take her place? It's admirable. It's the kind of thing that we would hope we would do if someone was threatening our siblings or our spouse. But the substitution of Jesus doesn't quite work like that because he doesn't take the place of a loving, little, innocent 11-year-old girl. He takes the place of cowards and hypocrites and sinners like you and me. And when he takes our place, God imputes all of our sin to Jesus Christ. Now, let me try and explain what I mean by imputation. I don't have any money on me, but if I had a tenner with me, and I gave it to James, and I said, James, can you just hold this for me? And he took the tenner. That would be me imparting something to him. But at any time, I could say, oh, James, can I have that tenner back? And he would hopefully say, sure. I don't know. I'm trusting his character there. But... Imputation isn't just mere impartation. I give it and then I can take it back. Imputation is me saying, I'm going to, James, give me your bank account details so I can pay it into you. I can credit this £10 into your account. And it's yours. It's as if it belongs to you now because it does. It's in your account. That's what imputation means. It means that God took all of our sin and he charged it into Jesus' account. He credited it to him. And Jesus died to pay the penalty for that sin. 
On the cross, God treated the sinless son as if he were a sinner. He wasn't a sinner, but he was treated as if he were a sinner. And he punished him in the place of lawbreakers like us. And all of our sin, think about, think about the day that you've had. Or if that, maybe you haven't sinned this morning. God bless you. I have. But maybe think about yesterday or the last week. Think about those, the things that you said that you wish you could take back. Think about the, the things that you did that were selfish. Perhaps you lied. Perhaps you got angry. Perhaps you cursed someone who cut you up on the road. Perhaps your kids just wound you up and you lashed out in anger. Perhaps your friend let you down. Perhaps your spouse did something that just really annoyed you and you reacted badly and responded badly. All of those things that you bring to mind, God has taken them and imputed them and charged them to Jesus Christ. With all of its condemnation, its penalty, its curse and its shame, all heaped on Christ. And at the cross, Jesus received the full and furious wrath of God poured out for those sins. Not that he had done, but that we had done that were charged to his account. And he, in that moment, experienced all that we should have experienced and died the death that we should have died. So Isaiah would say in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's where those three words for our sake come in. Because Christ voluntarily undertook to do this for you and for me. And that means that there is no punishment left for us to face. There is no punishment that we deserve from all the sins that we have committed that will fall on us because it all fell on Jesus. God is not a God of double jeopardy. He doesn't say, I'll punish Jesus for some and then you'll get it later. He says, no, Jesus took it all. He did all of this for your sake. So that now what you receive is the next bit of our verse. Let's read on. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now what does that mean? Well at the cross there's two transactions taking place. There's this first transaction where God takes all of our sin and he charges it to Christ. And then there's a second transaction that takes place where God identifies us with Jesus and takes all of Christ's righteousness and he imputes it to us. He charges it to us. He credits it to our account. So at the cross, it's not simply that God wipes the slate clean with you and your sin, but he also says, you are perfectly righteous in my sight. So... Back to our money illustration. It's not that I just come along and I wipe out James's credit card debt. But I also say, and here's an infinite supply of money that you can enjoy. There's two transactions going on. 
Calvin called it the wonderful exchange. It's not simply that our debt is paid and our slate is wiped clean. It's that God now imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the penalty for sin is paid, but the sinless Savior's righteousness that was required by the law, the righteousness required by the law that makes us acceptable to God is now ours. Because Christ has earned it and given it to us. What we're talking about is the act of justification. This act where God now declares us righteous or justified in his sight. So that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we trust in him and we repent of our sins and we rely on him as saviour. What God does in that moment is he says it's just as if you've never sinned and it's just as if you've always obeyed. It's just as if you never sinned because Christ has taken the sin. And it's just as, that, as if you'd always obeyed because Christ's righteousness is now yours. So that when he looks upon us, he sees us with a bank account that is bursting with the righteousness of Jesus. So that God says, you are acceptable to me. You are welcome into my family. I adopt you as my children. You are mine. And that moment of justification changes everything. For all eternity. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3.9. Now we are found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of our own. So not a righteousness that we came up with. Not something that we tried to put together and earn our right standing before God. But a righteousness through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God. The very righteousness that God requires to justify the sinner and to remain just, God provides in Jesus Christ. And in union with him, notice those words, in him. It's only in him. In union with him. When we put our faith in him, when we trust in him that this happens. It's only when we're in him. In union with him, Christ takes all that we deserve and we receive all that Christ deserves. All the favor, all the blessing, all the privileges of eternity and sonship. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the heart of the gospel. When you get your box of matches out, you don't have to come up with this as a formula, but it's a wonderful thing to memorize because it will help you get to the heart of the gospel. God made Christ, the sinless one, sin for us so that in him, through faith and union in him, we might now have right standing with God forever. These, these truths should, should bear out kind of three fruits, really. Firstly, it should bear out gratitude. For this is the best news that we will ever hear. Your biggest problem of sin has been taken care of. That should make you pretty happy and pretty thankful and pretty joyful. It should also make you very humble because we recognize that what makes you or me better than anybody else that we should receive this gift? Well, nothing but the mercy of God. And then finally, it should fill us with assurance and confidence. Wish we had more time to develop those, but we don't. We're going to sing in a moment before the throne of God above. 
I have a strong and a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do I do? Upward I look and see him there who's made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And then finally, behold him there, the risen lamb, the spotless perfect, oh, my, my memory's gone, the great I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this one verse wonder. And thank you for the glory of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that even as we return to the school and we can think, well, this is, we're back to doing the same things. Well, I want to say we're back to just believing the gospel again. And again, we're back to reminding ourselves of all that has always been important. The thing that is of first importance, it is the gospel. And so even though it might be a new season for us, let it be built upon the old, old story. The hope that we have, the joy that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us go away from here grateful, let us go away from here humble, and let us go away from here confident, not in ourselves but in and through and all because of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's hum along or mouth along or sing along.